Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that short sentence. I'm awfully glad to have uh, you with me today. If you just uh, join me, uh, we've got a great show. I've got Ken Harrison joining me in just a minute. He is the chairman and CEO of Promise Keepers. Chairman and CEO is not a title I will ever be stuck with, but I'm glad that Ken is going to come on the show and talk about a topic that is of great interest to me, and that is what's going on with men in our country. And uh, Ken, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, let's just get right to the point. What's what's up with men in this country? Let's be nice. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. There's there's so many different aspects to what's wrong. I, I think one of the biggest things that's wrong, um, besides the obvious of, of our declining faith, which I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah is that men don't know how to risk rejection anymore, young men. I mean, you think about when we were kids, if you wanted to ask a girl on a date, you had to ask her for a phone number, and then you had to call her house, and then her mom answered, and you were horrified, <laughs> right? Ken, you prayed that the dad didn't answer. You, you went prayed to that dance, and you had to ask a girl to dance, and life was full of risks of rejection. Yeah. Yeah. Boys. Well, they, they don't do that anymore. No. And so we literally see, even with our young people, this terror of rejection of any kind and therefore you get a lot of passive aggressiveness that's just one of the many examples we have not yet figured out how to deal with this idea that for all the history of mankind boys have had to risk rejection to become men and now they don't yeah and men are lonelier now than they've ever been exactly connect those dots rejection yeah so there are they're also uh, struggling more and more with um, jobs and drug abuse, alcohol, all kinds of stuff. It's really sad. Well, and you know, I mean, really the, the big elephant in the room is pornography. Yes. And um, you know, there, there's a lot of studies that show the devastating effects of pornography. There's one in Ted Scheimer has a book out that I, um, I quoted it in my book, Daring Faith. And um, in it, make a long story short, they took 80 people back in the eighties. They took 80 people who had never seen pornography before in their lives. And they divided them into two groups and they did a study one group for five hours per week. They watched Disney movies or something. Mm-hmm. And the other group, they watched pornographies for the first time in their life. They saw pornography. This was a mixture of, of men and women who had similar backgrounds. Then they gave them a questionnaire and there's a bunch of questions in it. But one of them is what should be the minimum sentence for rape? They'd only watched pornography for six weeks, five hours per week for six weeks. And the group that had not watched pornography said 12 years should be the minimum sentence for rape. Mm -hmm. The group that had watched it said six years. Wow. So there's a bunch of other examples from that, but it shows you that the rot of your brain and your soul gets to the point where you don't even stand for justice for women. And so I, I really think, you know, you say, what's up with men? One of the things I have to correct men on all the time is you're running promise keepers. 
men want me to tell those women and, you know, tell them that they're victims. And I'm like, no, no, no. First of all, what you need to understand is there is not an attack on masculinity in this country. There's an attack on femininity in this country. We have disenfranchised women for decades. We've we've played down what it is to be a woman. We've, we've devalued the incredible gift of making life in your body. Mm-hmm. And now what, what do we hold up as a strong woman, an, an artificial man? We, we hold up a woman who's doing male things and acting like a man. So every aspect of femininity we've attacked, and now men are sitting back and calling themselves victims. Mm-hmm. And I think the point to that is we need to tell men, you are not a victim. Your wife, your daughters are victims, and you need to do something about it. And I think that would change how men see things and get them more involved. Mm. Ken, I brought this up on my show uh, last week, and I guess it's maybe worth repeating because it was a statistic on the number of years it took each product to gain 50 million users. For cars, it was 62 years. For the computers, it was 14 years. For YouTube, it was four years. For Pornhub, it was 19 days. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. I know. Oh, it says in Scripture... If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if mm-hmm. you sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life from the spirit. Now, we don't we don't reap eternal life by being good. So that's clearly talking about something other than salvation. It's talking about again. I quote this all the time. Whenever the Bible mentions eternal life in the in the present, it always means salvation. Whenever it re- mentions it in the future, it always represents a higher level, a, a better level of living, being a disciple, rewards in heaven, and a better life on this earth. If you sow to this flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. And this is why we see so much weakness, because what happens with men who are obsessed with their flesh is effeminizing. There's mm-hmm. nothing masculine about being James Bond, about being promiscuous. It always results in a lack of justice, uh, caring for and protecting women. And it, and it results in what you what you see in our culture today, which is rampant promiscuity and a lack of respect for women. And we see that in the Bible, the last chapter of the book of Judges. We see that in Athens, we see it in Sodom and Gomorrah, that when you get to the point of complete abandonment to the flesh, the first thing that goes out is women's rights and respect for women. That, that's, a, that's a toughie. Boy, I, I'm sad to see that our society is, is having more and more of these issues. Uh, Ken Harrison is my guest. He is the president and CEO of Promise Keepers. The chairman and CEO? I want to make sure I get your title right. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to get rid of one of those, but... Yeah. (laughs) Got to find the right person. Yeah. Let's go back to the way that men have drifted from godliness and there is less and less of a connection uh, between men and their faith. I'm not saying for a lot of Christian men, but I'm just saying for men in our society, they don't, they don't have a a fear and reverence of God and a fear and respect of, of, um, of anything spiritual. Well, both are true. I mean, so one of the gods that we worship in our society is comfort. Um, we, we will go out of our way to be comfortable. And in fact, the only way you can grow is through pain. And, and if you think about it, like if you want to get in shape, what will you experience? Pain. You'll, you'll, you'll experience the pain of not having the whole bag of potato chips. And you'll experience <laughs> the pain of putting on the running shoes and going out and running and you know, all that stuff. If you want to learn a new language, you know, pain of studying, on and on. Any any kind of learning, any learning comes from pain. And yet we worship comfort. And so therefore we see 
what is the what is the total foundation of discipleship of Jesus Christ? He gives it all in, in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And what is the overriding thing you get from that pain? Mm-hmm. He's not talking about salvation because he said to Nicodemus in John 3, all you need to do is be born again. Believe in me, be born again, you're saved. So now he goes up, separates himself from the crowd and says, let me go on for three chapters about how miserable you're going to be if you really want to be a disciple. Why? To, for the sake of being miserable? No, because this is how you grow. And so men have always had to, all people have always had to go through pain throughout all of history. If you wanted to, to exist, you had to come together in interdependent communities to survive. So we had to have a town because there had to be a blacksmith and there had to be a farmer and there had to be a police officer and all those things. And we all came together as a community to survive. Now, with this technological revolution, you literally don't need anybody. You can, you can live your life completely on your own. And that's what we see is rampant loneliness, a lack of accountability. Because if you were in a town, people would need you to be an upstanding character who did your job well. And if you didn't, you were out. You're out of the society and you couldn't survive. Mm-hmm. So there's accountability within a community to make sure men acted like men. They had no no patience for cowardice and all that flake being flake. But now you you literally can get through life with no accountability. And we're seeing what comes from that. It's, it's a lack of friends. It's a lack of accountability and therefore a lack of joy because we see, as you talked about, misery. And one of the statistics you may not know is there are 127 suicides per day in the United States of America. 80% of those are middle-aged men. Wow. So men, they're going to develop their character uh, with strong role models. So hopefully uh, their fathers were there in the household, raising them, disciplining them, holding them accountable, making them do the hard thing. And if that was not the case, there is going to be young men who are going to go out and find um, not fatherly shepherds, but partial shepherds, which might be the cool kid down the street who's three years older, who's got a nice car and might be selling drugs. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was a Los Angeles policeman and um, down in, in Compton, Watts area. And um, what don't, I saw. Don't think you know more, more about me than on this one, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> if you think you know well, more than I do right now, I got a problem with you. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and hear your story. Well, what I what I saw was what happens with fatherlessness. Of course, I mean, you have there what separates South Central Los Angeles from most other communities is you have an epidemic of fatherless boys. So you know, usually I would work from ten o'clock at night until eight o'clock in the morning. Well, you know, down there you would hear gunshots and screams and all kinds of. It was just a, a, a crazy adrenaline filled from the moment you got out of roll call until about three or four in the morning when mm-hmm. people went to and then all of a sudden everything became quiet and then as the sun came up six seven o'clock in the morning you would see the women out there um in certain places on their knees scrubbing the blood off from the sidewalk where there's wow. a driveway mm-hmm. it, it's what happens when you have a bunch of teenage boys who, who have no fathers anywhere no men holding them accountable it's right south central la is very a very highly churched community it's people they all go to church. They're very community oriented, but you don't have dads giving the hard work to their sons. And this is one of the things with promise keepers. We've said this will be a bit of a different iteration. And I just realized some people may not have heard of promise keepers, but it was the biggest men's movement in the church in history. Maybe probably the biggest men's movement ever, you know, but filling up football stadiums in the nineties and it's, it's coming back and it, 
it's been very ecumenical, very unifying of the church. It was the original in racial diversity. And um, one of the things we've seen with Promise Keepers in this iteration is because of the friendless American male epidemic, we've got to get men back together, be unified. Well, how do you do that? Well, you know, I said earlier, people came together in towns to be, uh, to survive. So men made relationships by doing, they've always made relationships by doing, because when men do things together, they see how each other performs under stress and then you develop trust. Women make relationships by communicating and men are horrible communicators in, in general. Well, our entire society today is all about communication. It's all social media, Facebook, even church. You go to church and you chat with people and you go home. There's very little doing together. And so therefore men are checking out of society. And what are they doing? They're checking into pornography and video games and fake masculinity because you go and kill people on your little video game there, but you don't actually take any risk. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes demasculating and isolating. So what we realize with Promise Keepers is in order to rescue men from this downward cycle, what we need to do is get them back into relationship through doing, not communicating. Because even if you look at a church group for men, what do they do? In general, if they have one, they have a Bible study at six o'clock in the morning on Fridays. But that is not going to form relationships with men. Right. So you know, they're going to go do their little religious thing and they're going to run off to work and they're going to forget about it till the next Friday. And then they're going to drag themselves there because they think they're doing their religious thing. So we've got this thing called the Daring Faith Tour where we're going to do three hour nights on Friday nights. And we're starting off in Nashville this September and then Houston, Memphis, New York city, and then a whole slew of cities in 2024. But the point is get guys together for three hours on a Sunday, feed them dinner, worship and talk to men like men, because we don't have that anymore. Back to all the way circling back to the, the, the ghetto Compton Watts thing. Mm-hmm. Problem with men who don't have fathers is Mothers are invaluable, but mother's job is to nurture that little Johnny skins his knee. And what does mom do? She picks him up and he cries and she tells him it's going to be okay. And she kisses his knee and she puts a bandaid on it. And he feels very cared for and loved. Sometimes little Johnny though, isn't hurt as bad as he makes it out to be. And sometimes little Johnny needs a dad to say, shut your mouth, get up and keep going. <laughs> but dad, the, bo- the bone sticking through the skin. <laughs> yeah, sometimes men go too far. That's why we need both a mother and a father. But the problem is too many boys just have mothers. And so what we're what we need to get to is a point like with promise keepers where we talk to men like men, which is says, listen, we understand you may have had a really bad father. We understand you may have had um disadvantages in life. All of us have. Now what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Stop your whining and people are counting on you. What are we going to do together to get you prepared? Mm-hmm. So faith tour, the first side is people are counting on you. Be daring in your faith. Be bold. God rewards uh, courageous people. That's the whole story of scripture is screwed up people choosing God and mm-hmm. moving boldness. The second part of it is, and you've got to do it together. Because if we just tell men, you've got to be more bold, you've got to be more daring, they're going to say, yeah, I'm going to. We're Carter. I'm Clint Eastwood. I'm going to be bold. No, you're not Clint Eastwood. No. You're a flawed person who has certain gifts for a certain point of what needs to be done. And there's other men with other gifts. And we need all of us together as a body to go do things. And if we get men to start seeing, I need to be bold. I need to get off my rear end and get busy. And I need other men with me in order to truly be successful at the mission God's given me. 
That's what will change society. Mm -hmm. All right, Ken, go ahead make my day. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take a little break. Be right back with Ken Harrison. He's chairman and CEO of Promise Keepers. We'll be right back. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Welcome back to the show. Ken Harrison is my guest. He's the uh, CEO of Promise Keepers, a former um, Los Angeles uh, police officer. And for all I know, he played guitar on that intro song into this segment. So, uh, Ken, you know, uh, men make other men better. We need each other. We do. You know, one of the things I, I speak on all the time is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. And so people all know Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you're saved through faith. It's a gift from God, not from works lest anyone should boast. I mean, we literally... We're saved completely by grace, and even the faith we have in Jesus is a gift from him. But the next verse, Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So every one of the us, after we were saved, was given a, a task to accomplish at the beginning of time. And one of the things we have, another problem with masculinity, especially in the church, is we plead we preach cheap grace and that cheap grace is, well, you said a prayer, you said, you know, Jesus come into my heart. And so now uh, you're done and you just sit back and wait to go to heaven. And you know, nobody ever said it like in those words, but that's literally what a lot of people hear. And so they're not active. They're not bold. They don't understand that born again means born again. You're now a baby in Christ. Now you need to grow up because people are counting on you. You have a, every one of us has a mission to accomplish. And we were specifically gifted for that mission. And so there's a lot of things we did to disenfranchise people, but we're talking about men. One of the reasons men check out is they don't realize they have a mission. The other reason they check out is they think, well, maybe I'm not good enough because we've elevated um, religious duty over serving Christ in the most foundational ways. And so we look at the pastor or the guy that runs the big ministry or the guy, the best-selling author, and we go, well, he's the varsity and I'm just the JV. No. We were all created equal in Christ and we'll all be judged, not for salvation, but for crowns and rewards based on what God had for us to do. So it may be that your mission was to have a really good radio show. Maybe that your mission was to run a great small business and be a witness to your employees. And maybe your mission was to raise really good children or to run for the school board. And God specifically gifted you for each one of those things. So for me, I lead a lot of organizations, foundations, I run lots of companies, as, and I was a policeman, so I have a gift of leadership and making decisions and motivating people. If you asked me to teach kindergarten, I wouldn't be very effective. Also, if you ask a kindergarten teacher to go and run a big organization, they wouldn't be very effective. We have our each our gifting. God will reward us based on what we did with what he called us to do, and I think that it's an important thing for men to get because they start thinking, well, all I do is... I have a landscaping business and I have eight employees. What good am I? Really good because those eight souls who work for you, really important. Every person that you meet with, every customer and client, when they see that you're different, when they see that you stand for Christ, when they see that you're bold with your faith, 
man can you have an effect on the world you don't know what you may have done with one person there's a great thing at the billy graham museum where it shows the timeline for billy graham and it shows uh, moody dwight moody led a guy to christ he led a guy to christ he led a guy to christ and that person led billy graham to christ mm-hmm. so Dwight moody to billy graham was three different people and look at look at the result how many how many tens of millions of people came to christ because of billy graham well someone led billy graham to christ so each of us if we understand we're equal in god's eyes regardless of what position we have we need to carry out the mission that we have that we were gifted to do and i think that really helps to get men off the rear end and go man there's a duty i have and god's going to reward me for carrying out that duty not somebody else's duty ken it's pretty important that men realize that is those are the marching orders from from God that He has gifted you in a in a unique way and has a very specific plan for your life. That's right. I like that. How how do you think the church is doing when it comes to elevating men, celebrating them? Um, friend of mine who always tells me he said around uh, Mother's Day the sermon is always oh mothers you you your problem is you love too much, and then when Father's Day comes around it's always Dads, you need to do more. Yeah. Uh, you know, I lit up Twitter once. I got people so upset because <laughs> I, said, I said that one of the biggest, I was on uh, CBN on the TV show, and I said that one of the biggest um, problems that is feminizing our society today is the evangelical church. And man, that I made people angry. Oh, I bet. I mean, because I talked about the fact that this whole idea of when you say, if you say a prayer, you're saved, and now there's nothing left to do. Men need something to do. Yeah. If you tell them that they got theirs, then they're going to act like they got theirs. And so I do believe that a lot of this feminization of men is coming from um, not only that, but preaching a Jesus that doesn't actually exist. And I also talked to the story, I think it was in the book, Daring Faith in the Cowardly World, but it was one of the books I wrote. Um, I talk about how I was with all these pastors at big pastors conference. A lot of them were these liberal, you know, mega church pastors of, you know, mainline Protestant denominations. And one of the guys said that he just has issues with some of the things in the Bible about Jesus because the Jesus he believes in was nice all the time and always loving. And he doesn't like what some of the things the Bible says about Jesus. And uh, I said to him in front of all these guys, well, then you don't believe in Jesus. You believe in an idol and you named him Jesus. Mm. You know, that got him mad too. Like, <laughs> one of my sons, it's a good thing that God made you so big because if you weren't, somebody would have kicked your butt by now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we need to we need to give truth and hopefully with grace and, and love and humility but we need to give truth as well direct truth and jesus when we look at who he was he had some really harsh things to say yeah and we don't know the bible we think he was always nice and sweet but jesus said if you aren't willing to say goodbye to all your possessions you're not worthy of me yeah he said i came to set the world on fire and how i wish it was already alight. Mm-hmm. i came to turn father against son and mother against daughter what was he talking about yeah. He was saying, as he promises in the sermon now, if you live for me, you will make enemies. You will have people who hate you. Mm-hmm. So I ask all the time, who hates you and why? Right. I like that. Yeah. Ken Harrison, you come on my show anytime. Love to have you <laughs> on more often. Well, thank you. Appreciate right. it. Have a great rest of the day. You too. You bet. Ken Harrison has been my guest. You can learn more about Ken at promisekeepers.org. We'll take a short break and be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. If you just joined us, I'm so glad you're here. And we're going to continue on a brand new study. This is uh, lesson three. With Dr. Greg Heddington, we're going through the book of Daniel. When he suggested that, I got quite excited, and I'm looking forward to the next teaching lesson. Greg, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. Let's do it. So welcome to the third lesson in our study of Daniel. Today we look at the first 23 verses of chapter 2. Daniel is one of the most interesting and dynamic characters in all of Scripture, and he is Christ-like in many ways. However, if we focus only on the person of Daniel, then we're missing the greater emphasis in the book. The message of Daniel is not to be like Daniel or go on a Daniel diet, which, by the way, there is a Daniel diet, (laughs) or to go worship only so life will go better for us. If we do that, then this becomes a morality book. In other words, just do good things instead of a record of God's grace. This book is a reminder that God will do everything necessary to fulfill the promise he made a long time ago that through Abraham and his lineage, one day there will arrive one who provides a path for all who choose to enter the kingdom of God. That's his plan, and no one makes it there through hard work. Rather, we make it by receiving, by by saying yes to his grace. As John Newton once said, Jesus is a far greater Savior than we are sinners. It's in a quotation, although kings and kingdoms rise and fall, let's remember that the one true king endures forever, and his purpose will be accomplished, and I think we can all say amen to that. Well, I've been thinking about how we can make the study of Daniel really come alive and be relevant to us in the 21st century, and we look at events that occurred about 2,600 years ago, after all. So this lesson today will be mostly about application to our lives. In order to do that, I want us to consider the conditions in Babylonia in which the exiled Jews lived for 70 years. I want to do this because as Americans, we only know what it's like to live in freedom, and there's no way we can truly get our minds around what it was like living in Babylonia, but we'll try. Every time we open Scripture to Daniel, I want us to have a small sense of that emotional effect of the imprisonment that thousands of Jews had when they're in Babylon, when they're exiled, who lived under that totalitarian structure, and especially how four faithful teenage boys who sought the will of God daily resulted in impacting a nation. So let's look at the spiritual and emotional effect on the Jews. Roman number one, the lament. We know historically that about 20,000 Jews were taken from their homeland in Israel and marched 500 miles east across the Arabian Desert to Babylonia. This large deportation of Jews occurred over three different trips, beginning in 605 B.C., and all of them end up in the Babylonian Empire, a pagan nation which worshipped a whole pantheon of pagan gods, of which the capital city of the empire was Babylon. I so easily mention this information, but in fact, this is the greatest national tragedy that had happened to Judah since the 430 years they had been slaved in Egypt. And that was six centuries before this exile occurred. Many Jews in Babylon wrote heartbreaking laments of their longing for their homeland during those 70 years of captivity in Babylon. 
and you can imagine the tears that would fall from their eyes onto the papyrus pages. But of all the many laments in the Psalms, one particular lament, uh, lament especially stands out and gives a, a visceral feeling of what the thousands of Jews must have felt like on a daily basis that will help remind us each week of their condition as we read the book of Daniel. Now, this passage comes from the Psalms, and the easiest way to find Psalms in Scripture you may have learned is just go to the middle of your Bible, open it up, and it usually opens up to Psalms. Now, here's a little pop quiz about Psalms. How many Psalms are there in the book of Psalms? Well, if you answered 150, you are correct. Oh, good. I feel better about myself. Well done. <laughs> so, so here's something else. The Psalms were originally what? They were songs sung by the Hebrews, although over the years we've lost the sheet music, so we no longer know the melodies. But they were songs written by various musicians over several centuries and compiled in the Old Testament. Now, singing, in fact, is a good way to remember Scripture, or for that matter, anything else, if you have a melody in your mind. I mean, I've heard people recite the 50 states of America in alphabetical order when they use that device of singing. I think about the alphabet. I mean, every time, and I still use a dictionary, I'm old school, every time I go through the dictionary in my mind to go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, you know, something I learned when I was very small, but it's also the easiest way to memorize scripture that I found. And memorizing is a very important part of Jewish heritage. Now, some people assume that King David wrote all the Psalms. In fact, scholars believe David possibly wrote only 73 of the 150 Psalms that we have, which certainly does not diminish the value of any of them. That question, by the way, will not be on the test. Good. No, there is no test, so be of good cheer. But what's my point? My point is the Psalms we look at, and especially the Psalm today, which was written by one of those Jewish captives in Babylon, although we don't know his name, this psalm expresses the grief and the sorrow of the Jewish prisoners like no other scripture. And remember, if we're in the dates, this was written around 580 B.C. So here it is, the first part of Psalm 137. And if you're familiar with the musical Godspell, you may remember how beautifully it was sung. Here's, here's how it goes. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And remember, Zion's just another name for uh, Jerusalem. On the willows there, we hung up our harps because our captives asked for our songs. Our Babylonian tormentors demanded songs of joy from us and said, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of our Lord while we are in this foreign land? End of quotation. Now, that's a painful question for these exiled Jews to answer who are 500 miles from home. But it's also a good question for us, just as the Apostle Paul refers to us, who are followers of Jesus, who live in this fallen world. Paul calls us spiritual aliens. That's from 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Paul says that it's not odd that we should feel like strangers on this earth because this is not our true home. We're citizens of heaven, according to Philippians 3, verse 20. 
Believers hold that passport to heaven only because of one thing, and that's the cross of Jesus. Now, after hearing this lament from Psalm 137, we read in Scripture many other laments from other great people of faith who are also in desperate straits, all the way from the difficulties of Joseph to Moses to Daniel to the Apostle Paul, and they all could have fallen into despair, and they did lament. Now, laments are woven throughout the Psalms, but in spite of crushing circumstances, they choose to remember and trust in the promises that Yahweh has for them in his covenant with Abraham, that if the Israelites walk in his ways, they will be blessed. And let's remember in the Old Testament, these blessings were always conditional upon the Israelites following the laws of God, which they often did not do so well with. And these laments in Scripture typically conclude like the one in Psalm 42, which ends like this. Yet I hope in God, and I shall praise him, for he is my salvation and my God. Now, I hope that gives us just a small sense of the sorrow and longing that the exiled Jews in Babylon felt for their homeland in Israel, whenever you read it. And Bill, that brings us to point number two. That's awesome. Our teaching today is from Dr. Greg Heddington. We're continuing, if you just joined us, in the book of Daniel. We're in chapter two. And spectacular start, Greg. Thanks. Okay, well, Roman number two, if you're taking notes, the government system of Babylonia. The exiled Jews are taken prisoner and put into a totalitarian state in Babylonia. Now, I admit that I often open up Scripture and I immediately start looking for, I don't know about you, but I start looking for God's truth that applies to my favorite person, me, and I usually do not even think of the context. Having said that, there is virtually no way that any of us Americans who have always lived in freedom can grasp what it would be like to live in a totalitarian totalitarian state like Babylonia. Now, I've looked up several sources regarding the differences between totalitarianism and communism, and even though the academicians claim there's a difference, I just cannot appreciate the nuance. And I know it's not possible to know the answer to this question over the radio, but I wonder of our audience two things. First, have you ever taken a mission trip before to another country? And second, have you ever taken any kind of trip to a communist country? Well, thanks to the kindness of our Lord, I've been able to take uh, one-week trips to Cuba twice a year, except during COVID, for the past 25 years. And I'm going again in, in November with my wife, Carrie, and a bilingual friend. And when we go, we teach and counsel and listen to the plight of our brothers and sisters in Christ in several Cuban cities who are living sacrificial and courageous lives for the Lord to get some sense. Uh, this is why I'm saying it. So in order to get some sense of the Babylonian rule, it helps to compare it with an ideological system, which would be somewhat similar to that of the communist system in Cuba. This will help us remind that whenever we read about the daily lives of these Jews, it is not similar to daily life in whatever city you live in. But it's more like in ancient Babylon, or a lot more similar to the communist system today, in which the state controls everything politically, economically, whether or not one can go anywhere for all personal matters. In this system of communism, there is equal opportunity for 95% of the population. And in a word, that equal opportunity means misery and poverty. 
Just as King Nebuchadnezzar gives special privilege to four brilliant teenagers, the communist system also gives special privileges to a handful of brilliant and gifted musicians, athletes, and top-ranking communist officials. But 95% of the jobs in Cuba offered by the government pay, I know this is hard to believe, an average salary of $25, not a day, not a week, but a month. Mm. So the poverty is shared, and one must receive permission to do everything from using the Internet to building their own center block with their own hands. But even after going there for all these years, I still cannot get my mind around what it would be like to live in a communist country. But that was the unsettling plight of the exiled Jews for 70 years in Babylonia. Even in this Babylonian environment, in which there is so much to lament and to feel despair about, four young Jewish boys make a decision on how they will live. And, Bill, that brings us to number three, and I think it's probably a good time for a break. Uh, You're probably right, Greg. We're going to take a little break as we continue our study in the book of Daniel with Dr. Greg Heddington. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Well, it's a good thing we weren't gone long because I can't wait to get back to our study of Daniel. With Dr. Greg Heddington. Greg, let's get back to it. Well, Bill, we're looking at the second chapter of the book of Daniel, and I'm attempting to perhaps give us somewhat of the feeling that many Jews may have felt in the 6th century B.C. when they were marched 500 miles from their home in Israel to spend the next 70 years in pagan Babylonian Empire, which is across the Arabian Desert. So we'll pick up now in Roman numeral 3, which is Making Choices. We believe in the sovereignty of God, according to Scripture. In fact, what is the theme of our study in Daniel? God is in control of everything. God has one plan, plan A. We do not always understand why some things happen in plan A. But in spite of many mysteries, nothing is going to happen to you that has not first been cleared by our loving, gracious, sovereign God for our happiness, even though it is only in retrospect that we often see how that plan worked for good. Now, that's a great line, but I want to say it one more time. Nothing is going to happen to you that has not first been cleared by our loving, gracious, sovereign God for our happiness, even though it is only in retrospect that we often see how that plan worked for good. So, knowing that God is in control, what is our responsibility? Are we just to let life happen? No, because life is about the choices we make. And we'll talk more about the will of God later, but as followers of Christ, we make good decisions through prayer and study of Scripture. Martin Luther, the founder of Protestantism, once said, I have so many things that I will do tomorrow that I must wake up one hour earlier to pray. So one thing we do know is that life is not based on fate or luck. In fact, I suggest never say the words, good luck. Although the people who say it are unaware of the theology, the idea of fate or luck goes back to the pagan religion of the Greco-Roman mystery cults hundreds of years before Jesus made his historic trip to earth. 
Before Jesus arrived, many people believed their destiny was determined by the stars or, (laughs) kind of grotesque, but by looking at the entrails of a bird. Today, there are some people who will not make a move until they consult their horoscope. I've got a true story. One of my friends was on a jury duty, and as the 12 jurors were about to come to a verdict, one man said, my horoscope told me I am not to make any decisions today. Well, that certainly slowed down the process of coming to a verdict, to say the least. The point is we are not to live as though we are passive victims outside of God's will. Yes, God is in control, but we make decisions, good or bad, and there are consequences. As T.S. Eliot wrote, quote, For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. In other words, we do our best, pray that it's blessed, and Jesus takes care of the rest. After all, if we choose to sow wild oats at night, don't pray for a crop failure in the morning. God does not operate impersonally like Superman who swoops down to save people from their bad decisions and then flies away. Our Lord intends for us to learn from our decisions so that hopefully we become wiser. In Superman movies, no one gets saved, seems to learn much from what happens since Superman saved them. And of course, no one has a relationship with the Man of Steel except maybe Lois Lane, but that's a little complicated. (laughs) However, our consequences do not determine our attitude. Let me repeat that. Our consequences do not determine our attitude. As a great man once said who had experienced enough tragedy and heartache to destroy most people, he said this, people are about as happy as they choose to be. That man was Abraham Lincoln, and he had a lot of tragedy in his life. So here's the big question. What is the general will of God? Now, there have been hundreds of seminars over the years on this subject, what is the will of God? Well, I'm going to give it to you. This, this, it's a scriptural answer that, with no further ado, here it is. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. Now, that's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18. That's the general will of God for all of us, and we would have a happier and more peaceful lives if we live those words. Our Lord also gives individuals his specific will for them. So, Roman numeral 4, how do I know God's specific will for my life? Well, here's what God says in Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct you in the way you should go, and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, Daniel was a man of prayer. In this book, we see how Daniel receives clear answers from God in prayer throughout his 70 years of Babylon. Billy Graham once said that if he could live his life over, he would have prayed more. Imagine that. Billy Graham said that. Regarding prayer, here are some suggestions on how we can discover the will of God specifically for us. Roman numeral 4a, listen to him. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. So here's a question. In prayer, do we do all the talking, or do we listen to him? And if we do not listen to him, to whom are we listening? Are we listening to other people? Again, we we don't go to the phone. We go to the throne. We want to hear from the Lord. And it makes sense to listen to the one that created us and knows everything about our thoughts, even. Roman numeral 4b. How do I identify the voice of God? 
Because God is omniscient, that is, he knows everything, he knows exactly what we need and when we need it. And that's true, even if initially it may not make sense. Roman numeral 4C, his voice will always be consistent with Scripture. In other words, God will never ask us to do anything that violates his word. So the answer to that is we need to know his word. Roman numeral 4D, I know I'm going through these quickly, so I guess if you're writing, it'll have to write pretty quickly. Roman numeral 4D, sometimes his voice will be in conflict with what seems reasonable. Sometimes his voice will be in conflict with what seems reasonable. He may ask us to do something something which may not make sense at the time, or we may decide that we don't want to change at all. However, one of the best things about his word to us is he knows all things already, past, present, and future. He knows not only what is best for us, but he knows the gifts and skills he has given us, even if we're not always aware of them. It may come as a surprise to some people, but God is not a harsh taskmaster who's just waiting to thump us on the head if we make a mistake. I mean, I guess if you're going to talk to some of your friends who don't believe in God, you got to say, God is not a tough, a tough taskmaker. God loves you, number one. You just have to remember that. God desires our very best in every area of our life, and he just asks us to trust him. Now, his voice may clash with what we're used to doing and what we hear from others, and we might say, I know God is calling me to do something, or we might say, I know God's calling me to quit doing something, or I don't want to change my routine. But like Daniel, if it's God's will and we step up in faith, he will accomplish it through us in his power. I love Thessalonians 5.24, which says, The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Now, wait a minute. Does that mean we just sit back and we're passive? No. In other words, he will do it through us. We are his hands and feet, and God will not call us to accomplish something without first equipping us to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Roman numeral 4E His voice is often quiet. (laughs) I know people say, I've never heard the voice of God. He's just not loud enough. Well, often he does not shout, but speaks in a still, small voice. But we're more likely to hear his voice the more we pray and the more time we spend in Scripture. If we do not pray much or study much Scripture, there's a good chance we will not hear much of what God is trying to tell us. In fact, that's a pretty good formula. If we pray much and study much, we will likely hear much from the Lord. And when we make good decisions in life, they will not just affect us. They can impact a whole community and beyond. Speaking of making an impact, I'm thinking of that classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life, which I watch every year, when George Bailey, who gives up his dreams in order to help others, and whose imminent suicide brings the intervention of that angel. Do you remember the name of that angel? Clarence Oddbody, 
who shows George all the lives he touched and how different life in this community of Bedford Falls would be if he'd never been born. It's a deeply moving film, and the theme encourages us to remember the effect we have on others. Statistics show us that if we meet three new people every day of our life, no matter the depth of the meeting, by the time we reach 78 years of age, we will have met 85,410 new people in our life. That is potentially a lot of influence that one person could have on many others. A great man once said, what goes deepest to the soul goes widest to the world. It's a good one-liner. In other words, a transformed life for the Lord can have a profound impact for the kingdom of God to people everywhere, and we will see that impact from Daniel and his three buddies. Too often think we that how we live only affects us. Well, Scripture shows us that through the Holy Spirit we can change the lives of others through Jesus if we just choose, and that's the word that's important, if we just choose. So in conclusion, we have heard some thoughts on how you can discover God's will specifically for you. Now let's remember Paul's words. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. And, Bill, I think that's enough for today. Uh, Greg, you know, first of all, I love the teaching, as always. And then you gave a very interesting statistic uh, about the kinds of the numbers of of people you could potentially reach in your lifetime. Mm. Yes. And that's uh, a fascinating number. It was amazing. Yeah, thank yeah, you. It that. is, Bill, and it's. I'll tell you. You know, as Dave Barry puts it, some people want to change the world, but no one wants to help mom take out the trash. <laughs> well said. Have a great rest of the day, Greg. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest as we continue our study in the Book of Daniel. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.